0: Shall we start? Well, today is just over 30 years ago when the process of economic reform started in China with a, a meeting of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. The Asia Research Center is organizing a series of seminars and lectures this term to actually analyze what has happened in China over these 30 years. So Danny Kwa's lecture is the first in the series and he's obviously very well qualified to give such a lecture. He's head department of economics and professor of economics. He's been at LSE since 1991, and before coming to LSE he taught at MIT and was, was educated at Princeton and Harvard. He has a very distinguished professional record as an economist, and he's a man of many talents. He's done various branches of economics, including time series analysis and econometrics, but lately he's started to take interest in East Asia's particular Chinese development. Also, it's worth pointing out that he holds black belt in Taekwondo, (laughs) but he believes in peaceful means to settle intellectual disputes. (laughs) But he tells me up to an extent. So let's welcome... Danny, and...
1: Thank you, Arthur. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for your very kind introduction, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests. Um, Arthur is, is especially kind to say that I am qualified to give this first lecture in our... Uh, in our series talking about the progress in China since uh, economic reforms began. I and others in the profession still consider myself mostly a technical economist. Most of my career has been based on doing technical economics. And among people who do technical economics, it is quite rare that we break away and do what seems to most of the outside world quite a natural thing, to focus on specific instances of economic phenomenon, economic development or growth, and then build up ideas based on those specific studies. In technical economics, we actually eschew such kind of focus, and we particularly uh, do not do studies with a regional focus, Technical economists are skeptical in general of, ty- of papers that have words in the titles that you can identify with something in the real world. <laughs> so China would be one instance and India would be another, despite that these two together are one-third of the world. These kinds of studies are not typical for technical economists because they're not the kinds of material that typically show up in a top five journal publication that's useful for the research assessment exercise or useful for a tenure decision. But I decide that I should plunge into this study for two reasons beyond the obvious ones of how something like this is important A study about China or a study about something in the real world is important for those who actually live in that part of the real world or who are concerned with the economic developments and implications that growth in that part of the world might have on the rest of the world. Approaching this purely from a technical economics perspective even, I think there are two reasons why someone firmly embedded in the technical side of my profession might be interested in the kind of topic I want to talk about this evening. The first of this is that I study macroeconomics, and macroeconomists are people who study, as the term suggests, large-scale aggregate phenomenon. In an extreme, in a fit of hubris, I sometimes like to think that what we study in macroeconomics are the, kinds, are the only things in economics that are observable from outer space. Very few other things in economics have that feature. And if you are interested in economic phenomena that are observable from outer space, surely what happens in China has got to take leading priority. A second technical reason is that our textbooks in international trade or elsewhere are filled with page upon page of studies of the ideal small open economy. You typically study instances where an economy is too small to affect world prices or quantities. Those are taken as given, and the small open economy goes on its way, engaging in trade or in a particular development strategy. In China, we have the world's and history's first example of a large open economy. Nowhere else in history have we seen an instance of an economy over a billion people that is engages with the rest of the world in trade and in interaction as much as China does. So what the lecture this evening seeks to do is to bridge that gap between technical economics, where one might study things only in the abstract, and A critical part of the real world that overturns many of the standard propositions that we learn in economic textbooks, but much, much more important is it presents the kind of economic phenomena that someone sitting in a satellite in outer space can directly observe. So what I want to do this evening is to tell you a little bit about the shift in the distribution of the world's economic activity in incomes, in output, in poverty and trade, from the largest and most significant changes in these quantities that are now occurring on planet Earth. So the emphasis is comparative. You can't talk about shifts in distribution without paying mind to what China is doing relative to others in the world. i will go through three different segments of the lecture that attempts to draw out for you the implications of these of the observations that i'm going to make the implications about the historical shifts in the block of countries surrounding china i want to talk a little bit about the historical experience surrounding <coughs> financial crises On developments in these blocks. I then want to talk a little bit about the significance of these changes, not just in their responses to the rest of the world in financial crises, not just because they are important for thinking about how the world's distribution of economic activity will evolve, but for the changes that are actually occurring right there and the implications that those have for welfare. In the world. The third part of the talk, I want to treat some issues that are potentially more current now. In light of the current global financial and economic crisis, what do developments in this part of the world, China and its surroundings, hold for how we might not so much make predictions about how the future will evolve, but calculate probabilities on that future? So treating these in turn, let me just point out some basic facts. Over the last half century, East and Southeast Asia, by East and Southeast Asia, I mean China, Japan, Korea, and the countries in Southeast Asia, including Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, uh, Singapore. East and Southeast Asia collectively, over the last half century, have more than doubled their share of world GDP. And they've increased their average income at average growth rates almost two and a half times that experienced in the rest of the world. A consequence of this long march over the last three decades or five decades is that by 2006, East and Southeast Asia was producing one quarter of the world's $38 trillion worth of GDP, with a per capita income 79% of the world average. This is a large change in the center of gravity of economic activity in the world. When I make these comparisons, I'm doing this at market exchange rates. This is calculating what the contribution of East and Southeast Asia is to world GDP in what we used to call good Yankee dollars. Not correcting for purchasing power parity so that poorer countries see greater weight placed on their development. This is an actual dollars and cents of contribution to the rest of the world. So this large change has occurred over the last 50 years not smoothly. There have been bumps along the way. There have been upturns and downturns. As all of us here are, I think, now painfully aware, a catastrophic financial crisis has occurred in the world. We all have read about how asset values have plunged by up to 70% in different stock markets around the world. We've read about how real incomes have plummeted in different countries by up to 10% or more. And we have read and continue to read about how millions of people have either already lost their jobs or are potentially at risk of doing so. We've also read speculation about how easy credit and a lack of financial system transparency have together led to excessive borrowing of cheap money at low interest rates. This last has also fueled a boom in housing, property and asset markets across tightly coupled economies. That economy at the center of this financial maelstrom seen its current account deficit balloon to a record 8% of GDP. Now, of course, what I've just described to you is actually not just the world today. What I've just described to you is the world in 1997 surrounding East and Southeast Asia. At that time, the economy running this massive trade deficit that I've described was Thailand, not the United States. Up until the 1st of July 1997, on the 2nd of July, the Thai baht saw a disastrous run, a disastrous speculative attack, and over the next six months, South and Southeast and East Asia underwent the changes that I've just described. Changes that, of course, have resonance today because they're exactly the kinds of magnitudes that we see around us, except now not focused on East and Southeast Asia, but focused on the United States, the UK, and most of Western Europe. What I've described to you was the 1997 Asian currency crisis. That swept through East and Southeast Asia, and by most newspaper and contemporary accounts, was devastating for that region. And indeed, it was a devastating event. Singapore, a small, rapidly growing country that had up until then never experienced either recession nor unemployment, suddenly saw its GDP shrink by 1.5%. Indonesia, a far larger economy and much more important for Southeast Asia, saw its GDP fall by 15% within a year. Let's play a game. Suppose that in the run-up to this catastrophic crisis, we hadn't realized that such was about to occur. In fact, let's play the game where all along, East and Southeast Asia, China together with those had been growing at the rates that historically they had experienced from 1960, say, to the eve of the Asian currency crisis. We would then have realized that the average year-on-year growth rate of GDP evaluated at current market exchange rates for the region as a whole grew at 7.1% a year on average, between 1960 and 1996. When 1997, the Asian currency crisis hit, everybody in the region thought the world had changed, much as many of us go around thinking the world has changed today. When you play the game, suppose you plot a time trend between 1960 and 1996, and without realizing the Asian currency crisis was about to hit you naively extrapolate that time trend. The picture that you would come up with is the dotted green line that shows up in this graph. The horizontal axis is time, the vertical axis is GDP of the entire region. History is the blue line fitting a time trend, as economists, some economists like to do, through the history up until the Asian currency crisis leads to the fitted red line, extrapolating that naively without realizing that the currency crisis was about to hit would take you on the green line extrapolating upwards. When 1997 Asian currency crisis hit, reality, the blue line, took a sharp downturn. But then look at what happened look at what's happened in the 10 years subsequently. The blue line, historical reality, has pretty much approached back to the original naive extrapolation. Sure, it deviates, and over the last decade, the deviation has been an accumulated 5.1% underperformance. But compared to the magnitude of everything else that's happened, East and Southeast Asia pretty much sailed through this catastrophic financial crisis, relatively unperturbed. In contrast, compare this with other developments around the world. This shows world GDP carrying out the same exercise. Do the naive trend extrapolation ask how the world economy has performed over the last decade. The blue line shows the historical reality. Compared to the green line extrapolation, the world economy has underperformed by 10% in accumulated GDP terms over the last 10 years, leaving out, of course, what's happened since August-September 2007. East and Southeast Asia, the epicenter for this catastrophic financial crisis, recovered and recovered fairly quickly, and recovered in a way that puts to shame world economic performance over the same time period. Why did this happen? How did it happen? And does it have lessons for what the world is going through now? The next graph shows what happens in that exercise if I take China out of the equation. we see that the historical reality is East and Southeast Asia was pretty much pulled back to trend by the performance of China. China went through the 1997 currency crisis in a way that has allowed most of all of the rest of the region to return to trend relatively quickly. China has played a critical role in in being an engine of growth for the region through a critical period in its economic history. We can break that down in this graph. For those of you who are interested in unpacking this a little bit more, I won't, this graph shows some of the details in that. In a forum like this, I cannot take us through all the details here. What the horizontal axis here, this chart carries way too much information, but the message it's intended to convey is, I hope, relatively straightforward. It shows a time series plot of year-on-year growth rates for different individual countries in the region in the period around 1997. We see that all countries, all the countries pretty much underwent serious economic uh, recession over the 1997-1998 period. The worst hit of these was Indonesia, but even China experienced negative growth of 1.5% over this period. The The point I've tried to make from the exposition of the previous few minutes as well as in this chart is emphasized by the blue line that shows the growth rate of China seemingly sailing through this period without currency devaluation. Without its currency um, cheapening relative to, that of the, relative to that of the United States or relative to that of other regions, but simply powering on ahead through the sheer force of real economic growth. Okay. So, the first lesson that we've taken away from looking at just the crude facts in this 30 year economic history is that the, econ- the force that is Chinese economic growth has played a critical role. Before, in that part of the world countering serious recession. If we expand our focus to beyond simply the currency crisis in 1997 and beyond what happened in East and Southeast Asia, the resilience of East and Southeast Asia and China in particular shows more routinely as well not just in how they responded to crisis in their own neighborhood, but when you look at their behavior in the face of previous downturns in world economic activity as a whole, or U.S. economic activity in particular, that resilience again reveals itself. Up until two years ago, there have been two episodes in the last two decades where the U.S. economy went into recession. Those two episodes were 10 years apart, the first of those in 1991 and the second in 2001. In 1991, the United States actually experienced a fall in overall output of goods and services. In 2001, there was merely a slowdown. What happened in East and Southeast Asia, or China in particular, in the face of that kind of economic downturn, one often hears about how the U.S. provides is the engine of growth for the world economy and how if the U.S. economy stops growing, so with the rest of the world. It is true that the U.S. economy is still between one quarter and one third of the world economy overall, evaluated at current market, at market exchange rates. But the contribution to economic growth that the U.S. has been able to propel for the world as a whole is now far muted relative to what it was in the heyday in the 60s and 70s. In 1991, when the U.S. economy went into a downturn, East and Southeast Asia contributed 20 times what the U.S. downturn turned out to be to world economic growth. This is not as a proportional growth rate, This is not evaluated at purchasing power parity, which would overemphasize the contribution of the relative poor countries. Again, this is evaluated in good Yankee dollars, market exchange rates. East and Southeast Asia managed to hold world economic growth in 1991 when the U.S. economy went into a downturn. China alone contributed three times what the U.S. downturn turned out to be to world economic growth. Same thing happened in 2001. When the US economy slowed down, East and Southeast Asia contributed double what the United States did. China alone contributed nearly one and a half times what the US did. You see this pattern repeated over and over. The contribution from East and Southeast Asia and China to world economic growth has continued to be robust and strong, whether or not the U.S. economy slowed down or actually fell into recession. That shift that I described to you in the center of gravity of world economic activity eastwards has been not simply a shift that has moved the focus of economic power, but is a force that has helped maintain world economic growth in the face of slowdown in the United States or elsewhere. Over 2002-2006, China and India, each of them, with a per capita income less than 125th that of the U.S., already contributed almost 70% in total economic growth, what the United States did over a routine period when the U.S. economy was also growing quickly. So what I've drawn for you now There's a map of the world that shows a shift in the economic center of gravity and a resilience over time in the face of downturns. The shift in economic gravity has been eastwards. China has been a massively important factor, hugely significant in propelling that change. And that change, moreover, has been positive for the world in light of world business cycles. But of course, East and Southeast Asia and China were not placed on Earth simply to stabilize world business cycles. They themselves had an important role to play in furthering the welfare of the people there. So let's turn our focus away from shifts and financial crises, away from business cycle downturns, but then let's look at people in particular, and let's look at inequality and poverty specifically. Okay. Most people who've read the New York Times or other uh, world newspapers in the last 20, 30 years, well, gosh, over this period of economic reform that Arthur told me I should be talking about this evening... Have appreciated how inequality in China has grown massively. Nor less a hysterical organ of left wing radicalism like the Wall Street Journal <laughs> has lamented this fact. Okay, this graphic, which I stole from the Wall Street Journal via Paul Krugman, uh, shows the so-called Gini coefficient of income inequality for China in the blue line over the last 30 years or so. The vertical axis in this graphic shows that Gini coefficient. Gini coefficients are numbers that vary between 0 and 100%. Um, The higher they are, the worse the inequality within a society, the more unequal a society is. So let's just first get a grasp of what the numbers are for China, and then let's put this in the context of other things we know about income inequality. China, in 1980, at the beginning of this transformation that Arthur has described to you, showed a Gini coefficient that corresponds to, well, a relatively socialist, egalitarian ideal. Gini coefficient at that point stood at about 30%. Over the subsequent 30 years, there have been some small decreases, but most of the long march of inequality in China has been upwards. So over these last 30 years, Chinese income inequality has now risen to last year a Gini index of over 50%. What do these numbers mean? A Gini index of 30%, a Gini index of 50%. Well, let's compare this with other things we know about inequality in the rest of the world. Belgium, a relatively boring, (laughs) peaceful, egalitarian society. Some of my best friends are Belgian. I hope you know I'm just do, doing, just taking poetic liberty with this. Belgium has seen its Gini coefficient remain at about 30% for most of recorded history. Okay. It is an egalitarian society. It is the level that China began at. The United States, that bastion of dong eat dog capitalism, or post-transition Russia, where oligarchs swoop down and grab huge chunks of natural resources, are both societies where income inequality shows a Gini coefficient of 50%, which is what China has now transited to. So within the space of this generation, within the space of these 30 years, China has gone from Belgian peace and boredom to U.S.-Russia dog-eat-dog capitalism. This, for many people, is the price of the rapid economic growth and the liberalization and the market liberalization that China has undergone in the last 30 years without losing sight of what China and the rest of East and Southeast Asia has done for stabilizing world business cycles for coming out of international financial crises. Let's unpack what's happening here. One of the reasons we're interested in inequality is not just the abstract notion of inequality, but because we think more unequal societies, other things equal, have more people living in poverty. If all else is unchanged... The more unequal a society is, the more poorer people there are in society. So let's turn around this discussion, realize that not all else was being held equal in China over these last 30 years, and let's take a direct look at the number of people who are actually living in poverty. Now, over the last quarter of century, three decades or so, world average income, since we're now looking at poverty... Since we're now looking at the welfare of people, I'm going to switch now to purchasing power parity, taking into account that prices of many commodities in poorer countries are also relatively lower. So we correct for this purchasing power parity. The world as a whole, over the last 30 years, measured in purchasing power parity, the average person on earth saw... Her income in one thousand nine hundred and eighty one rise from just under six thousand u s dollars to four years ago over eight and a half thousand u s dollars an increase in the last thirty years of about fifty percent. The good news described for you in this row of the table shows that when you count up the number of people living on less than a dollar a day, uh, living on less than a dollar a day, extremely poor people in the world, together with the rising average income, that number has fallen from, this is the world's poor measured in millions of people, so this is 1.9 billion people in 1981. number of world's poor has fallen from 1.9 billion people to now less than 1.5 billion people. The world's population, of course, has also risen in this time from about 4.5 billion people in 1981 to over 6.6 billion people now. As a fraction of the world's population, the ratio of extremely poor people in the world has fallen and has fallen dramatically. As As a planet we are now well on our way to meeting the UN Millennium Development Goals, reducing the rate of extreme poverty by a half by 2015. The world as a whole has seen the number of extremely poor people fall by about half a billion. When you do the same, this has given us some context some way in which now to turn back to the focus this evening, which is China, and appreciate that if you do the same exercise for China's poor, that has fallen from 835 million people in 1981 to now 208 million people in 2005. In light of, we realize the tension between two forces a force of rising average incomes and a force of ever-higher inequality. Those two forces, we realize, have in reality reduced China's extremely poor by 627 million people. Wait a minute, what's wrong with that math that I just did? China has reduced its number of very poor people by over 600 million people the world which contains China has reduced the number of very poor people by 500 million people. It must be that outside of China, the world's poor has actually risen in number. China, among all the major blocks in the world, despite its massive and high and rising inequality, that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have, and many observers have seen fit to comment, has actually, by this criterion, done more for improving the welfare of humanity than all the rest of the world combined. What I'm going to show you next adds no new ideas, gives you no new statistics or data, but simply tries to animate for you the facts that I've just described. This is a chart that graphs world incomes and poverty. On the horizontal axis, I have put average income in a country or block of countries, measured in thousands of dollars. And on the vertical axis, I have put number of people living in a dollar a day poverty. In this space, I have put spheres or balloons The size of a balloon is the population of a block of countries or a single country. The location of that balloon tells me how rich, on average, that country is on the horizontal axis and on the vertical axis, how many poor people there are in that country or block of countries. So a few things to notice about this picture. China the big blue balloon sits way outside of everybody else's historical experience in 1981. It was poor, and it wasn't just poor, it had a lot of poor people because it was such a large country in terms of its population. India, this bright green bubble at the time, was a much smaller country in terms of people, its average income wasn 't that different from china 's, but because it was a smaller country, and because its society was more egalitarian, it had far fewer very poor people measured on the vertical axis. The rest of these are they 're not necessarily of, of uh, focused in our discussion this evening, but let me just flag what they are there 's Central and Latin america there 's Middle East and north Africa there is Uh, South Asia taking out India, there's East Asia taking out China, but a a block that I want you to focus on a little bit is this grayish block, which is Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is, of course, of great interest to the world policy community because that's where a lot of attention has been placed for poverty reduction and for funneling foreign aid. This was the state of the world in 1981, What we would like to see is the collection of these balloons cluster southeasterly. We want to see countries grow so that their average incomes are high and we want to see poverty fall so that these balloons sink to the floor of this picture. This was the state of the world in 1981. This is the state of the world in 2005. China by then, the balloons grow in size with An increased population. China by then had moved towards that southeasterly part of the picture. So too had India, but obviously not as dramatically. And then there were other dynamics going on, but none as hugely significant as what happened with the China bubble. How did the world move from 1981 to 2005? Well, this animation charts that history. I'll I'll let it run for a few minutes But not too long Because everyone will grow (laughs) cross-eyed But I do want to emphasize Some of the large, massive changes In humanity That the last 30 years has seen Keep your eye on the big blue bubble That's China And you see that it is on a mad rush Not just rightwards in economic growth, but southwards in this picture, lowering the number of people living in extreme poverty. Notice that the bright green bubble, which is India, is attempting to tag along the Chinese path, but has so far, up until very recently, not succeeded at either average per capita income or the extreme poverty reduction that we've seen in China. The only other feature I would want to draw your attention to is the grayish bubble labeled SSA, Sub-Saharan Africa. The tragedy that is Sub-Saharan Africa shows up in this picture through that bubble, not moving rightwards at all, but simply percolating vertically it has seen no economic growth, but only an increase in the number of people living in extreme poverty. This, remember, is the place where that's most visited by Angelina Jolie and Bono. (laughs) And for all of their efforts, the sub-Saharan African bubble has not yet been able to produce the kind of miracle That we've seen in either average income or poverty reduction, um, that China or India imminently or already is starting to show. The China India story can be pulled out of that picture. So I want to just go over this before I then close out the lecture by reflecting on how we use these observations going forwards. Okay, if we compare China and India, pulling out the dynamics from the previous picture, on the horizontal axis once again is average income. On the vertical axis is once again the number of people living in extreme dollar a day poverty. The China history is traced out in the blue line. We see that it began with a lot of poor people and relatively and on average relatively poor but about as poor as India. China, in the last 30 years, has seen ongoing economic growth, and all the while through that, has also seen dramatic poverty reduction. Remember, in the light of measured inequality that has risen from a Gini index of 0.28 to an index approaching 0.5. Despite this massive increase in inequality, poverty reduction has been dramatic and we realize accounts for more than 100% of the world's poverty reduction if we are as a planet meeting the un's millennium development goal it is only because of china india has begun its slow rightwards path but obviously has not shown the same success as china has so that concludes my description of the shift in world economic activity and the shift in improvement of human welfare over the last 30 years. Okay, it has been a descriptive historical tale. I have not obviously had the time to go into reasons why China has seen the kind of economic performance it has. I assume that over the next few weeks as the Asia Research Center Unwinds its course of lectures and panel discussion, and uh, the China Development Forum this Saturday occurs. We will see great discussion on that kind of unpacking. And I want to take this discussion, however, and look a little bit forwards. The kinds of shifts in the center of world economic activity, the center of gravity for the world economic for world economic activity, or the kinds of shift in human welfare that I'm talking about are massive. They've occurred over a relatively short period of time. They're not the kinds of things that the planet has seen before. And as one would expect, they're going to lead, they're going to give rise to tensions, international economic tensions, whether consciously or otherwise. We already begin to see the manifestation of such tensions Um, in discussion about Trade, international trade, currency devaluation, relative currency devaluations, and global imbalance. So, in the last few minutes that Arthur will give me,
0: I hope, Mm -hmm,
1: I want to turn our attention to something that's a little bit forward looking and a little bit more current. It was the fashion for a lot of the last three to five years to hypothesize or speculate about China and East and Southeast Asia decoupling in their economic performance from the rest of the world. Some of that decoupling discussion might have been undertaken in light of the empirical regularities that I've described to you, but then again, they might not have been. It might simply be a gut instinct reaction to the things that we see around us. I prefer to think not so much in terms of decoupling, which is a bit difficult to swallow when at the same time we see a world of ever greater globalization, but I prefer to think more of the formation of clusters of trade where different groupings of countries might spontaneously or endogenously emerge, trade more with each other, not actually decouple from the rest of the world but because certain blocks or certain groups of countries trade more with each other it is natural to expect that their economic performance will be more strongly interlinked than with those countries from which with which they do relatively little trade so to speak of this clustering what i would like to do is take you through some of the changes in these clusters and then talk about how these changes Reflect upon emerging patterns of global imbalance and speculate or encourage you to speculate, perhaps in the question and answer session, about why this might have something to do with the current global financial crisis. Okay. Turn a little bit away from China for a moment and look at what remains the largest. Economy in East and Southeast Asia, far larger at this point than China still. What this graph shows is the evolution of Japan's patterns of trade bilaterally with different countries or different blocks of countries. So we see the United States, that violet-purple line, shows the amount of trade as a fraction of the total trade that Japan undertakes with the rest of the world, that Japan undertakes with the United States. We see that trade with the United States for Japan peaked at 35% sometime in the mid-1980s, and since then has steadily fallen to less than 15% of Japan's trade now. At the same time that this happened... Japan's trade with China, the blue line, has risen sharply from less than 5% of Japan's total world trade in the mid-1980s to now over, tripling to over 15% of Japan's trade with the rest of the world. And significantly, Japan's trade with China overtook Japan's trade with the United States two years ago. Same pattern we observe for East and Southeast Asia's third largest economy, now South Korea. South Korea, too, traded with the United States over one-third of its total trade in the mid-1980s. Since then, that ratio of trade has fallen steadily to now just about one-third of what it used to be. Equally significantly, Korea's trade with China has exploded from about 2.5% in the mid-1990s to now over one-fifth of the trade that South Korea does with the rest of the world. And significantly, Korea's trade with China overtook Korea's trade with the United States even earlier, five years ago. Now, the next graph that I was going to show... I've had to remove because I've already made too many jokes. But the next chart I was going to show parallels exactly the same message from these two charts. What it shows is the fraction of LSE's foreign student population (laughs) um, that came from North America and from China. For most of recorded history... By far the greatest number of foreign students at the LSE came from North America. China, mainland China's population here was essentially zero 10 years ago. Two years ago, you now know the punchline to that, two years ago, the fraction of LSE students that come from mainland China and Hong Kong overtook that from North America and has continued to show the same pattern of trade as Korea does with these countries <laughs> and Japan does with these countries. Okay. But what is the pattern of trade for the country that we are here this evening to discuss look like? This shows the same exercise for China. And what we see is that contrary to japan contrary to how china has assumed ever greater importance in japan's trade china's trade with japan peaked early on in the mid 1980s since then has fallen china's trade with south korea has risen china's trade with the united states and the european union has fluctuated but has remained roughly constant at around 15% Where has all this gone? What is China doing in terms of its trade with the rest of the world? By far, the largest amount of trade that China does is with the rest of East and Southeast Asia. China trades more with East and Southeast Asia. China trades with the rest of East and Southeast Asia by more than double what it does with the United States and the EU. This is not decoupling, But this is certainly the emergence of a cluster of countries that trade one with the other. What are the implications of this? I turn now to the message that we should take from this little tour to something that I think we are all having to live through now and trying to come to terms with the current global financial crisis. What has brought about the current global financial crisis? What might this have to do with the kinds of large dislocations that I've spent this evening discussing? Well, there's one large hypothesis on the table. The large hypothesis on the table is that one of a number of reasons for the state of the world today is the emergence of Asian thrift As an important factor in world patterns of income and savings. The emergence of this Asian thrift has led to the rise of a global savings glut. And that global savings glut, through over the last two decades, lowered world interest rates, encouraging investment bankers and financial markets to become ever more innovative. In uncovering new spiffy financial engineered products built on, among other things, subprime mortgages and leveraging to multi trillions of dollars in the financial infrastructure. How does this story go? Okay. The United States over the 1980s and 1990s, ran roughly a a balance of trade that was, as the name might suggest, in balance. This figure shows the dynamics of that U.S. trade balance. The significant feature for us here is that from the early 1990s on, the U.S. trade balance went into deficit, and it went into deficit big time. It went into deficit in such a way that over the course of the last 15 years, the U.S. trade deficit has now exploded to, by 2006, over $900 billion, or 7% of U.S. GDP. Coincidentally, by the way, about the same ratio that the Thai economy was running on the 1st of July, 1997, before the first wave of speculative attacks on the thai baht now the us is a rich economy so when it runs the current account deficit as large as this it is something that we need that the rest of the world feels so this chart inverts that us trade deficit so that we see it evolve as this blue line and i plot against it mischievously oh just somebody's gdp So let's take India, a country that has over a billion people and over the course of a year produces an Indian GDP. India's GDP was soon overtaken by the U.S. trade deficit alone. So that by 2006, the United States was running a trade deficit larger than the GDP of India. India. Sometimes when I'm riding the train back home, I think about it this way. By 2006, the U.S. consumer was eating one India more than her neighbors were able to produce. Now, this has dramatic implications, obviously, when something as large as this is occurring at the same time as the changes that I've just described for you in the rest of the world. The United States was massively borrowing on world capital markets, and yet, if you look at what w- world interest rates were like over this period, the details here are far too intricate for us to get too much into. The point is to notice is that world interest rates fell steadily over the last 15 years. Even as the United States was overborrowing, interest rates fell. How can this be when you see such a massive, high demand? for resources, yet interest rates fell. Well, the story, the Global Savings Glut story, says that the U.S. consumer was not sufficiently disciplined because at the same time that she was borrowing so much in the world, interest rates continued to fall. And the reason interest rates continued to fall was that there was a massive accumulation of capital on the other side of the world that flooded world markets to such an extent that interest rates were lowered. And indeed, when you look at the US China bilateral trade balance statistics, that seems to support the story. The US China bilateral trade balance shows a dynamic that almost exactly parallels the US overall current account deficit. So it looks like China might have been the one accumulating capital Recycling it in world capital markets, lowering interest rates, and therefore driving the U.S. consumer boom. Okay, and obviously that is potentially consistent with the story that we've just told. There was a 1997 Asian currency crisis. That part of the world recovered quickly. It realized the one of the lessons it took from that was never again. It became poten- potentially in this story became prudent, saved too much, hence the global savings flood. I want to suggest to you that even as the world distribution of economic activity is changing the way that I've just described, this story doesn't quite hold water. And the reason for that is when you put into this graph the bilateral US trade deficit against not just China, but against the European Union and the oil-exporting countries as well. And you realize that when you add the EU and oil-exporting countries together, their bilateral current account deficit against the United States, almost dollar for dollar, step for step, matched the U.S. bilateral current account deficit against China. This evidence tells me that even as the world's economic activity is shifting, in the direction that supports some of that story, it is potentially the U.S. consumer that was driving its trade deficit, its trade account ever greater into deficit and allowing the rest of the world to respond passively but sufficiently such that together with the actions of central bankers over the last 15 years, world interest rates were sufficiently low. And that that is what explains the the low interest rates that we saw leading into the current global financial crisis. Let me finish. What have I done? I've told you two things about the shift in the world economic activity. I've highlighted for you the resilience of East and Southeast Asia, and I've told you the significance of China through periods of localized but regional financial crises and through world downturns overall. I've told you how that shift in economic activity has not just been something that's moved the center of, a gravi- center of gravity, but it's something that has brought great benefit to that part of the world, even in light of rising and high inequality. Then I've told you about how what's happening there has geopolitical implications. And there are geopolitical implications that are not necessarily the most obvious immediate ones, but that are important ones to think through. As the global financial and economic crisis unfolds, at some point, there will be even more fingers pointed at what brought about the state of the world. And it's important, just as we think about economic history in the way that I've described to you, to use this economic history to think about how the world will evolve as a geopolitical system looking forwards. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for a splendid lecture, clear, cogent, thought-provoking, and above all, co- colourful. And so the floor is now open for questions and comments. Please keep them in brief and say your name before, before speaking. Have you got microphones? Yes.
2: Okay, let's... Over here... Just, um, My name is Keith Raffin. Just looking to the future, obviously uh, China's had a slowing growth rate for the last six quarters, and albeit now it's got 6.8%, which we'd be delighted to have, um, the Chinese government is extremely worried, um, reputedly, uh, that uh, w- w- with any growth rate that's below 7%, because of the potential for social unrest, which we've already begun to see in its manufacturing areas. So um, isn't, isn't that a major issue? And also the fact that, apart from the other issues in China, economically, a lack of R&D and so on. Uh, the second, and obviously the inequity, the growing inequity that you've pointed out. The second point is, is your point about trade clusters. Does that mean that you basically think that forget about Doha, as long as we have uh, bilateral deals or regional deals, that will be sufficient to get us all going again? Okay. <coughs>
1: Thank you. Thank you for those questions. The phenomenon of slowing China is, uh, is obviously a real one. The, in terms of raw numbers, as you've said, you know, right now the best estimates suggest that China's growth will be close to 6%. Um, and to put that in context, of course, it is a huge slowdown relative to the 11, 10 11% growth that China has seen over the last two decades. Six percent is still three times what most of the West would be happy with. But of course, China still has to find jobs for four million graduates this year. Uh, it's, you know, it's already seeing layoffs in Shenzhen and elsewhere, and you know, it cannot continue its momentum of shifting workers from relatively low productivity rural areas to higher productivity urban areas if the jobs aren't forthcoming. Having said that, however, we should also appreciate that uh, even without the global financial or global economic crisis, China has had a rough year in general. There were the most serious ice storms China's experienced over the last three decades at the beginning of last year. There was the massive Sichuan earthquake. There was the shutting down of a lot of um, transactions from the Olympics and diversion of activity into the Olympics. Going through all that, all indications are now that oh, yes, China will be China will slow down. China slowed down too in 1997, 1998, by the way. Uh, it just didn't slow down as much as everybody else did. What I think is going to happen going forwards, I think that you know China is already, the government has already uh, unveiled its 4 trillion yuan fiscal expansionary program when and who are suggesting that there's more forthcoming. Um, there is There are different parts of China that are seeing strong, robust growth at the same time that we see surveys of business people and manufacturing orders, export orders fall. Okay. So what is what comes out of all this? I, I think that China is going to be in for a, rel- a tough year relative to what its previous history had been. Do I think it will continue to be part of the engine that drives world economic growth? I think yes. I think it will continue to be strong and it could well come out of this period shifting even more the world center of gravity eastwards. It's a delicate time and we have to see what will unfold. My pet worry, actually, is potential protectionism from the rest of the world I think China, as I said, is the world's first large open economy. It has almost, I mean, in a way, it's it's tried to mimic Singapore in its pattern of growth, which is kind of bizarre because Singapore has about 5 million people now. China has 1.3 billion. But it's trying many of the same things that Singapore did. And it relies on world markets to drive economic growth. I think protectionism will be something that countries do that end up cutting off their nose despite their own face, and it's a dangerous time especially because of that. That's also why I think a discussion of the Global Savings Club and Asian thrift is important now. I don't know what the right answer to that is, but I think it's something that we need to be more aware of. Um, now, your second question was, should we forget about WTO and Doha because we see this emergence of clusters? I, I would very much not want to do that. I think that what we see spontaneously emerge are patterns of comparative advantage that arise from free and open trade. Just as some countries will, find it will, will see fit to export only certain commodities and import others, um, so too, many countries will see fit to import more from particular groups of countries and export more to other groups to other countries, maybe even the same countries. That's just allowing natural trade theory and comparative advantage to emerge. That's very different from a pattern of bilateralism. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Okay, over here. Thanks, Danny. Um, Robert Wade. That was a very um, interesting, entertaining lecture. Um, But uh, I want to ask you two questions. One is, um, you did not... Uh, take account of the fact that the World Bank has recently made uh, amongst the biggest ever revisions to international statistics um, by revising very substantially downwards the per capita GDPs of both India and China measured in purchasing power parity terms by very substantially downwards, I mean about 40% downwards and have Uh, has tripled China's extreme poverty count and roughly doubled India's. This is in line with new calculations of relative prices. So the question is, um, how do these massive revisions downwards of the GDP and uh, revisions upwards of the extreme poverty headcount affect your conclusions? And the second question is, taking off from what you were just talking about about the miracles of comparative advantage how do you expect um, industrial activity to develop in sub-Saharan Africa if it is the case as it is according to a recent dissertation in the uh, uh, Development Studies Institute that Chinese makers of doors doors can land doors in the landlocked capital of Mali and out-compete local Malian doormakers how can uh, industrial activity develop in Africa um, in the face of Chinese competition if African countries do not use any form of um, protection or other means of um, subsidizing the development of new industries
1: Thank you Robin Um, the, so let me take your questions in turn. Um, the numbers that I've been using here, the numbers that I showed here, uh, the numbers that come out of the World Bank ADB 2005 recalibration of purchasing power parity. So to be clear, they are numbers that are different from, I think, the last time uh, I appeared on a stage that I used the last time I appeared on a stage with you I believe that these are the numbers that you are referring to but if not I would be very happy to uh, take advice from you on, on redoing these numbers for now these numbers were the ones that I put together um, after the Asia Development Bank published its last report this summer on PPP correction so i think these are the latest numbers and until you and i have our off the record discussion later i'm going to stand by them <laughs> on the the issue of what mali should do when china flies in its doors um you know as a as a liberally trained neoclassical economist um i you know stand by the basic advantage of comparative ad, uh, a basic uh, story of comparative advantage until I see significant deviations from that of the kind that say theories of monopolistic competition or information or outsourcing might might bring to the table for the time being, what you 've described to me when China outcompetes or outprices uh, doormakers in Mali. Um, Until I learn something more about that situation, I interpret that as the workings of uh, of competition that brings cheap doors to the Mali consumer. Now, if if the Mali production sector obviously is suffering from this, but they're not very good at producing doors. So they need to find something... And if they're not, then I I don't want to have a house that has shoddy doors. (laughs) I don't want to live in a house where the door might be broken in. If I could get a robust China-made door. As they say in Little Britain, I want that one. So until you tell me, or until... Perhaps I need to read the dissertations that this student has produced uh, to unpack this story more carefully. And there might be other things going on here, but I don't see any reason to deviate from that for now. Thank you.
0: you. Right, okay. What about here in the middle? Uh,
3: Thank you. Uh, My name is Hannes Reynish. I wanted to bring... um, with my question, another output of China's economic activity uh, into the room and have your uh, opinion of that if possible. And one uh, economic output that's not captured by GDP or poverty rates or Gini coefficients but may have a significant impact on those which is um, carbon dioxide. So my question is how sustainable you feel the economic growth rates um, that we've seen in a carbon intensive economy are in the light of a threat of global climate change?
1: Yeah, that's a that's an extremely difficult question. I have no good answer for that. I mean, the facts that we know are, are well rehearsed. The amount of CO, I heard, I hope I heard right. You are talking about CO two emission, okay? We know that the stock of CO two emission in the environment as a whole, huge percentage of that comes from or how over the last 150 years the West has industrialized and industrialized very well. It is true that China and the other emerging economies are now contributing. CO2 emission at a rate faster than, uh, than that in the West now. But as a stock, those are still relatively small. Now, so here's the tension. Here's the tension that we need some good, solid political economy thinking to resolve. How do we convince a part of the world that sees the fruits of industrialization spread well in a, at, a, at a level that they aspire to, and that you know, arguably will bring greater peace and stability in the world, and all the good things that come from uh, you know, different parts of the world engaging with the rest of the world economy. All good things that flow from that. How do we balance that out, off against the five-fold expansion in CO2 emission that China has seen over the last 20 years alone? That's a really difficult question. I don't have a good answer to that. Let's take it there and then I come to you. Um, hello, Roger Schneider, LSE student. First of all, thank you for that interesting talk. Uh, my question deals with uh, China's currency management. Recently, we've heard some signals coming out of the new US administration that accuses China of manipulating their currency, which is, can be explained as part of their big competitive advantage. What do you think is China's future? with its currency and do you think it's sustainable to hold it at this level for them thank you Okay. Um, we know that the the Roman P has appreciated since um, July 2005 not hugely not as much as the United States obviously would like to see but uh, nonetheless has risen Um, what is the future of that particular problem It's difficult to say. I mean, obviously, we have one force that's arguing that China's real exchange rate ought to be a much stronger MMP. And on the other hand, China, although it might never articulate this as explicitly, obviously holding the line against that force. Um, If we're arguing that we need this kind of currency realignment to overcome Um, a massive U.S. bilateral trade deficit against China, well, we realize, as we saw a few minutes ago, that the U.S. is running a massive bilateral trade deficit against pretty much everybody that's not the United States, against the EU, against the oil exporting countries. It's difficult to say that this is due to an undervalued renminbi. Um, So I, I think that we need to expand that particular discussion if the real problem is the U.S. current account deficit, and I agree something like 8% of GDP is not sustainable, we need to think about ways to repair that, but in a way that does not discriminate unfairly against one part of the world that is attempting to engage with world society more generally, and perhaps, uh, you know, discriminating unjustifiably.
3: really enjoyed your talk. I I first have a really boring nuts and bolts question because I know very little about China Uh, and since you're an expert just wanted your opinion but some people tell me that Chinese data especially in a downturn is especially unreliable Uh, and people are pointing to the divergence between say electricity production uh, and the GDP data we just got Uh, So your opinion on that would be valued. Uh, Related to that, uh, again, people who know more about it than me tell me that uh, the announced fiscal package, a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. Uh, so, 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 So those are just the nuts and bolts questions. And then I think the broader questions are... You rightly said that you uh, were worrying about protectionism, uh, and Geithner's tone, you know, doesn't bode well in that regard. Uh, But do you think China is now politically ready uh, to play its role uh, in 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 terms of uh, a contribution to resolving the global crisis? and that it's ready to play a role in terms of stimulating domestic consumption not domestic investment remember the mistake Japan made when the bubble burst was stimulated investment in an economy already with excess capacity Uh, and at first sight China is making the same mistake and second related back to the question that was just asked on exchange rates is Back in '94, China responded to a domestic slowdown by devaluing by 32 percent or whatever. Do you think there's a risk of that?
1: <clears throat> okay, thank you, Sushil. Um, the The question on the first question on the reliability of um, Chinese GDP data. Uh, relative to more direct indicators like electricity, consumption, uh, fall, in commodity, fall in commodity prices or oil prices generally as indirect indicators of what China and India as well are doing. Remember, not that long ago, six months ago, this last summer, you no, know, we were all lamenting how the price of oil was going through the roof. Crude oil was headed for two hundred dollars a barrel. Most governments around the world were worried about inflation rather than you know, the serious recession that we're all now confronting. And at the time, many people were pointing to China, but all, you know, China and the rest of East and Southeast Asia, as being a big source of demand for energy in general. So now we see the opposite of that. We see a sharp decline in electricity production, and also we see declines in manufacturer surveys. We see actual, you know, uh, factory layoffs in Shenzhen and elsewhere. And those seem to be an order of magnitude uh, worse than the GDP uh, uh, GDP falls. I think there is probably some chance that all of these are consistent, one with the other, because these are all, you know, they're not all you know, electricity is important for all of GDP but it courses more powerfully through certain sectors of GDP than others and there are differences in which different sectors of the economy are declining the rates at which they are declining I suspect that when all of this works out we're going to realize that China's GDP figures are no worse than the GDP figures of any other country but we'll have to wait and see on that and remember also China remains a relatively poor country and we have to take that into account as well The announced fiscal package, the 4 trillion yuan uh, stimulus package, it is true that a lot of that, from my reading as an outsider, a lot of that were uh, planned spending and planned investment that were already in train before the announcement. And there was uh, an attempt to repackage that so that it seemed larger than it actually turned out to be. Uh, There is an element of that. I think there's also no question that it is a large fiscal stimulus. Okay. Maybe not 100% of 4 trillion, but certainly some large fraction. And as a fraction of GDP, this is massive compared to things that other countries are doing. Is China ready to step up to the plate, as it were, in world geopolitics, in world economic discussion? Uh, I hope it is, because I think that at this point, the balance of power has shifted to where the United States has borrowed more than a trillion dollars from China over the last decade or so, and is now attempting to lecture to China what China should do. It seems to me that you know, borrowers can't be choosers. You can't be in hawk to someone by as much and then carry a credible voice. But unless somebody else, major, steps up to the geopolitical stage and contends with the United States on how this discussion emerges, the United States remains the only player. And I don't think that is a very healthy situation, given, uh, given that the United States also has to cater to its domestic politics, which won't necessarily always be aligned with world welfare. So we, we are at a dangerous point, and I hope that China does step up to the stage. Now, A lot of China's savings at this point do not come from the Chinese consumer. A lot of China's savings at this point come from accumulated profits by corporations and proceeds from on the part of the government. So releasing that savings is not just a matter of stimulating private consumption demand some adjustment has to be made at corporate and government level and that is quite different from how stimuli to aggregate demand through consumption has previously worked in the United States, the UK or elsewhere so we need to be mindful of that as we think about how China will will improve its scenario on aggregate demand you know uh, it Barack Obama is is spending a lot of his trillions of dollars on infrastructure as well, on health, on highways, on internet infrastructure. They want to catch up with Korea, so you know, increasing aggregate demand through increasing investment is no bad thing necessarily. Um, so, if I may, can I just leave it at that? Thank you. Right. Okay. Um,
0: somebody over.
3: Uh, yes, I'll come to you. Hi, Fadi Hassan, student. You you mentioned that we can draw can, that you we can draw some lessons from the from how we countries recover from their crisis. Mm-hmm. I would like just if you can go more into the details what what we can take as lesson for for now for us.
1: Okay, you you want me to expand on the discussion about.
3: Yeah, you mentioned that, okay, you said before, we can take, for the current crisis, for how to get out of the current crisis, oh, we can take some lesson on yeah, well, how Asian countries take out. I see. Okay.
1: Uh, good. I, I actually, thank you. I actually didn't say very much about that, but I'm glad you've given me the opportunity to talk a little bit more on this. I think that we need, uh, we, we might, you know, as, as a group of economists or social scientists uh, study also how you know, patterns of of reform, financial reform, and uh, and re-expansion took place in countries like Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines. There was a lot of in, in the case of Malaysia, which is the case I know better. There was a lot of emphasis placed on isolating the toxic assets into you know a Dana Harta or Dana Modal structure. Uh, removing that from bank portfolios balance sheets so that banks the banks that remain could with clean balance sheets and relatively good health continue their you know resume their borrowing and lending, resume their financial activity. This the counterpart that I've seen of that discussed here is the, the bad bank idea. That we isolate in the UK we isolate the bad assets, put them into one bank and then leave other financial institutions with a clean conscience and clean balance sheets to clear, to continue their activity. That is a, a plan that seems, while it was successful in Malaysia and elsewhere in East and Southeast Asia, and successful in Sweden in the early 1990s, is not, uh, has not been, it seems to me has not been taken as seriously in the UK or in the US. Although there is talk about how about bad banks and let talk about isolating toxic assets. It does not seem to have seen the brunt of attention. So for my two cents worth in these trillions of dollars of financial maelstrom, I think we might pay some more attention to that.
0: Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
1: Sarah Moore, um, I'm an economic historian and when you talk about clusters, are you thinking about the European Union? That's what I was thinking about. And first of all, and also, how far do you think the arrival of the euro, first weak and then strong, has affected the world economy and China? Okay, now I can quickly answer the first one. The second one's a lot, lot more difficult. When I think about clusters, I don't think about explicitly setting up official boundaries, um, where within a circumscribed boundary, there's free movement of labour, capital, goods and services. But across those boundaries, there is a greater barrier. When I think about clusters, I think about them emerging spontaneously, through simply countries finding it more naturally advantageous and profitable to trade more with certain groups of countries than with others, not through the artificial construction of barriers, so that it is an us versus them. I think this is probably not the time to rehearse again arguments about the European Union. But my my interjection in this comparison is that I, I don't think it's helpful in a world where trade should be more and more globalized to set up barriers so that there is there is an us versus them idea, us versus them concept. On whether the arrival of the euro how that has affected the uh, Chinese China's development, um, I'm going to have to take a punt on that. I don't I, I I don't think I can say anything that begins with a sentence and then stops in finite time, so perhaps we can do that elsewhere.
0: And over there. Hello, my name is Mirella. Thank you very much for the lecture. I'm just a student has limited knowledge about China. Um, my question is uh, more geopolitical, uh, namely whether its economic success could be uh, possibly
2: equivalent to its geopolitical success. Um, specifically whether China could um, attract other countries in terms of its ideology. Um, in other words, could China be a challenger to, to um, liberal democracy, or is China ready for the democratic change? Thank you.
1: Okay, there the, are the, the multiple parts to your question. I, I think I can only treat two. Do I think that the economic successes here will be? Eventually, to a greater geopolitical role, I think the answer has got to be yes. I think history shows that that is what invariably happens, and it might be that you know if you are particularly instrumentalist in how you view the global financial crisis, you might say that this these are simply the workings out of that re-emerged new order. We'll have to see. Um, I I think that the outstanding attribute of Chinese economic policy is pragmatism. It is not command and control. It is simply trying to figure out what works. And I think that pragmatism is the same kind of pragmatism that infects Singaporean economic policy. And I think that is something that's extremely useful. All right, okay.
2: Julia um, Ferrari, student.
1: I was wondering. How um, how you see the change in the balance of trade between sub Saharan
2: Africa and China play in global geopolitics in the future?
1: Yeah, until until, you know, very recently there was I think that it was beginning to emerge the idea that China would be much more proactive in engaging with activity in sub Saharan Africa economic activity in Sub Saharan Africa in particular. And again, the pragmatism is that you know, it, it's not really concerned about you know, the political implications. It simply wants to do business, and if that helps sub-Saharan Africa develop, then more power to it. I, with, the, with the global downturn, we'll have to see whether that continues. Now, you know, Robert, Robert Wade has left already, so it might be that with the global downturn, you know, China's doormakers will actually retreat out of Mali. But I hope that, you know, if if it does do that, that retreat is temporary. Because right now we've tried so many different things in sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's time to let China have a go. It could well be a good success.
0: Okay, that will be the last question.
2: Um, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, The first question is really um, about a chart that you showed, which... um,
1: Indicated that the pickup in trade in, uh, between Korea and China has come at the expense of the US, but the EU line seems to be very stable. So, if you could offer some insight there and potentially comment on implications for the EU, that would be useful. Um, and the second question is uh, the, back, uh,
2: the bad bank idea uh, for the UK and perhaps also for the US. Why that's not gaining. You know more um, interest or reception,
1: compared given that we already have experiences in other countries of that. Okay, thank you. The, on the Korea, I think you were talking about patterns of trade in Korea, and whether you know the the increasing focus with China was diver- was drawing away from the EU. I I don't think we uh, I don't think we can quite say that. It is true that you know the fraction of trade that Korea his undertaking with the EU has fallen... Oh, sorry, the U.S., right. It's the U.S., sorry, I, 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 I'm I, misstating, thank you. Um, but, you know, but remember, it's also... Uh, well, actually, what is it also? I, I don't know, it could, <laughs> it could well be that, you know, there is that divergence, and there are interesting things to think through. I hadn't quite... Uh, I hadn't quite caught on to that as a, as a strong feature, but it might be interesting to explore. I, don't, I think we're running out of time. I thought going to get mad at me, so I, I don't think I'm going to take another 30 seconds to speculate on that for now. On the bad banks policy, I, I, why you know, the US and, and the EU or the, or the UK has not taken that up more, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it might be that um, you know, there, are different, there are at least three different plans that the, that the UK is, is looking at now. The bad bank's idea is one of them, but it seems to have fallen into disrepute. I, it might be that the structure of the financial system here does not uh, make that as attractive as it should be, but I, my mm-hmm. hunch is that we just don't know enough at this point. Right.
0: So let's finish here, and thank you very much for a splendid lecture. <laughs>